just want to say it's good for us to be together. And it was uh, great for us being together yesterday for those who were able to participate in the, the Bible study we had in the park, trying to invite our friends and neighbors to learn about the gospel. And um, we're going to, Lord willing, be doing that again next month. We'll probably be getting pretty too cold pretty soon here after that. So next month might be our last time to do one of those. But y'all know, as we sang about, I appreciate the songs that were selected to exhort us and remind us uh, what the Lord wants to do, to try to reach our friends and neighbors with the love of Christ, which has changed our lives and filled our lives up. We're trying to do that for everybody we know. That's the work of love, um, to, to send the light, to let people know. So appreciate everybody in all the different ways that you're participating in the work of the gospel. It's encouraging and it's moving us all. And there's things we can do together in activities, but also you know. The even more potent things are the things uh, that each one of us are doing in our daily lives with our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family to show them the goodness of God and to speak the truth to them. We've been trying from time to time to spend uh, focus on what Jesus had to say in his great Sermon on the Mount, the good news of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And of course, the interesting thing about the Sermon on the Mount is it's introduced as the good news of the kingdom at the end of Matthew chapter 4. But whenever you read it, it has some very challenging teachings including the one we're going to talk about today. I'm going to read it again. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. I'm reading from the CSB. It says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What if one of your friends came to you, Christian or not, and they said, Hey, I got something I need to tell you. I'm getting a divorce. What would be your response to that? Mentally, emotionally, what would you say back? What do you say back? What's the right thing to say? I think it's actually an awkward question, even if you don't espouse what Jesus says here. Even if you're not a a Bible-believing person, it's kind of a little awkward. What are you supposed to say? I'm sorry? Oh, no, it's fine, it's fine. Congratulations? No, I'm heartbroken. I mean, it's a confusing and awkward thing in any setting. But it's a challenge to us as followers of Jesus to think and speak about all things the way Jesus does in an accurate and true way and in a kind and gracious way to all of our friends and neighbors. Uh, So what we're going to do is try to explore what does Jesus say and how should we think about this and uh, how should we interact with this, not primarily, by the way, with other people, but starting with ourselves. I recognize there's a range of experiences everyone here has. Uh, with the subject of marriage and divorce. Some people have never been married. Some people have and have lost their spouse for a variety of reasons. Some people are married. Um, And we could go on down the line with the whole, uh, I want to say spectrum, but it's a multidimensional kind of uh, issue, marriage and divorce. But this is an important thing for us to consider as Christians and uh, for us to understand what Jesus has to say and to understand the importance of it, which I hope we can do for the next few minutes. So, So if Jesus had taught us this, we might say to Jesus, and he does, but let's imagine we're there. I'm going to say to Jesus, Jesus, why are you so absolute about this? I mean, notice what he says there. Do you see it? Everyone, everyone, any man or woman, by the way, here the scenario is a man divorcing his wife. But in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, Jesus flips the scenario, a woman divorcing her husband. So it's not like a woman can divorce and she's off the hook. She's fine. Nope. It's an equal, uh, equal command given here, as, as really uh, most, most all commands are. But this is no, there's no exceptions to this, except one, and that is infidelity on the part of uh, one party to uh, commit adultery, to commit sexual immorality. That's the one permission that's given for divorce, but there's no other reason. Well, I changed, or he changed. We grew apart. 
or something happened or whatever. No, there's, there's really only one reason, one permission that Jesus gives for divorce. And not only that, he says there are going to be other sins. We'll talk more about that in just a second that come as a result of divorce. Jesus, why is this such a big deal? Why are you so absolute? And this is hard. This is a difficult teaching. Uh, if you want to go ahead and flip to Matthew 19, I want to read this to try to answer this question for us. Jesus, why is this such, such a strong teaching? Why do you make divorce into such an evil thing, such a wrong thing, such a sinful thing? Jesus' teaching was so extreme on this that just after the passage we're going to read in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus' disciples say to him, it seems like it would be better to not be married at all. And Jesus' answer is, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Jesus basically is like, Maybe, maybe. This is a hard teaching, at least for some to accept, Jesus says. And I want you to listen to what he has to say uh, in a discussion here in Matthew 19 to help us explore this question of why is divorce wrong? Why is divorce such a grievous sin in the eyes of God and according to Christ? Read with me in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. Some Pharisees approached him, that is Jesus, to test him. And they asked a different question that we're asking, but it gets us to the same answer. Uh, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Now, no doubt they had heard what Jesus taught back in Matthew 5, which was probably something Jesus taught in many places. So they knew what Jesus taught. They were testing him. Hey, can you divorce on any grounds? Listen to Jesus' response. Haven't you read? He replied. Often Jesus' answer, by the way, have you not read? In other words, I'm not inventing this stuff. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, we got him, they thought. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Gotcha, Jesus. That's what they thought. He told them. Moses permitted. Notice how Jesus clarifies. They said, Moses commanded. Almost like, you should get divorced. Moses commanded it. And Jesus says, uh, okay, settle down. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your hardness of heart. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, and here we have a repeat almost identical from Matthew chapter 5. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Your translation may have a line that's in some manuscripts that repeats the line from Matthew 5, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Why is divorce so wrong? Do you see some of the answers that Jesus gives here? I see at least three. There may be more, but there's at least three reasons that Jesus gives to tell us why divorce is so wrong, why it's a sin, why it's evil, and why it's something that Christians cannot uh, engage in. Uh, the permission, the permission being set aside, of course, right? That's the one reason that Jesus gives this is allowed. But in general, the rule for divorce is no, no divorce. Why is it so bad? Why is it so wrong? Well, the first reason Jesus gives is it contradicts, it goes against God's created order for human relations from the beginning. Divorce contradicts God's created order for human relations from the beginning. That's what he points to. Uh, it's interesting, their 
evidence for their position, which, of course, they were excited about divorcing their wives. Oh, I should say this. I don't know if sometimes you ever bemoan the fact or read statistics, which may be kind of flawed if you look into them a little more, but about divorce, they, oh, man, our, our culture is so messed up with divorce. Look, I'm not saying that our culture is great on the issue of marriage and divorce, all right? But apparently Jesus' culture wasn't either because Jesus had to teach on this multiple times. All three of the synoptic gospels include references to this. Here in the Gospel of Matthew, we have two statements about it. It's talked about in the letters to the churches uh, in the rest of the New Testament. So this isn't a new issue. It's not unique to us, all right? So we don't need to despair over that. Uh, but anyway, whenever they were trying to defend their position, they say, well, hey, look, Deuteronomy 24, Moses commanded that we send our wives away with papers for divorce. And Jesus acknowledged that. He said, well, yeah, that was permitted. But that wasn't what it was from the beginning. And of course, there were many things that were permitted or uh, 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 that were given statutes in the law of Moses that were not what God intended and were not what God brought about in Christ. And so Jesus says, okay, that's not what it is. Let's go back to how God made things. How did God make things? Do you ever read in Genesis 1 and 2? And God created them male and female. And he said, whenever you're ready to divorce, here's the process for this in the Garden of Eden. It's not there. There's no division or pushing away between humanity in the beginning. God didn't make human beings to split up or to divide. God made human beings to work together, to come together, to be one. We'll talk more about that in just a second. Divorce is evil because it contradicts God's created order from the beginning. Which means if I were to choose to divorce my spouse, and God help me and y'all help me, if I ever were to be tempted to that sin, that's your responsibility, by the way, as Christians. It's come to me and correct me in that. But if I were to ever be tempted to that, there would be two things that I would do if I were to commit the act of divorce by my own volition apart from the permission Jesus gives, right? Number one, it's a real insult to God. Hey, God, I know your rules about marriage and what you said about this and how you want it to be, but you know what? We just grew apart. Uh, I don't really make her happy. She doesn't make me happy anymore. I, I want to go somewhere, and she wants to go somewhere else. And we're, just, we're agreeing to go our separate ways. Good for you, the Lord says. But I didn't say that you could go your separate ways. And who died and made you the creator of human relationships? To to divorce is to contradict God's created order from the beginning, which is a real insult and disrespect to God. But I want to tell you another reason why why this is important. If God created uh, human beings to become one in marriage, not to divorce, and if divorce contradicts what God made from the beginning, then divorce is not good for us. Which I know this is the wild, wild, wild take here, okay? But I think it's true. Uh, I don't know of anybody who divorces thinking, oh, we're doing this and this is going to be actually worse for us. Most people see it as a solution. We've got a problem and this is our solution. This is the escape hatch. This is how to make things better. You think you can come up with an idea for how to make your life better that's better than God's idea for how to make your life good? Do you remember in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, Everything God did, including creating humanity as male and female, and then putting man and woman together in marriage. Do you remember what the Bible says about that? It was good. It was good. It was good. Seven times, except the seventh time, it doesn't say it was good. After God created man and woman in marriage, it says it was very good. You think you can do better than God's very good with your ideas about how to handle your relationships? Divorce is wrong because it contradicts God's created order from the beginning, which is a disrespect to God, and it's a disservice to ourselves, frankly. So even if you don't really respect God that much, if you can learn to trust Him, which I guess that's the hard part, but you need to come to trust Him, and He is trustworthy if you want to talk more about that. Ask us so we can tell you why. 
But if you trust God, then you stay with this because you know His way is going to be good for you. That's, that's one reason Jesus gives us for why divorce is wrong. There's a second reason here, though, in the text. Did you see it? What happens as a result of divorce? Did you see what Jesus says? It's actually in both of these texts that we read, Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. What happens whenever someone chooses to divorce their spouse for a reason besides sexual immorality? He says there in verse 9, Jesus just kind of takes it as a given that what's going to happen is whenever you divorce your spouse, you're going to run find somebody else to be a new spouse. He just assumes that that's what's going to happen. He does the same thing in Matthew 5. In Matthew 19, he talks about the situation of, okay, I choose to divorce my spouse, and then I go, and I'm going to find someone else. And by the way, even if Jesus hadn't implied this in his teaching, we know this from experience. Think about how many people you know who have been divorced and how the overwhelming majority, and you don't have to just do this anecdotally. You can go look at it statistically. The overwhelming majority of those who divorce their spouse go in, marry again. Well, what happens now? I've divorced my spouse, right? Boom. Put them away. Not for the cause of sexual morality, just because we got tired of each other or whatever. I put them away, and then what do I do? I go and get married again. What have I done, Jesus says? I've committed adultery, according to Matthew 19. Now, did you remember in Matthew 5, you want to cheat back, go and look at it again. But in Matthew 5, Jesus flips it around. He says, whenever you divorce your wife, she will go and marry another. So now she's committing adultery. Oh, by the way, both of us, we've committed the sin of divorce, and we've gone, and now we're in adulterous relationships. You know who else is committing adultery? It's not just us, but the people who married us. Do you see what the problem is with divorce? Divorce leads to further sins. Now, I guess we could argue almost all sin does that. Anger, lying, lust, selfishness, greed. It leads to further sins. But Jesus says here that uh, the sin of divorce is incredibly likely. And you may say, well, I know somebody. Okay, wonderful. That's great. There are exceptions to every rule. Jesus acknowledges that. But come on, you know. The overwhelming majority in almost in all cases, uh, divorce leads to further sins. In other words, divorce is a sin multiplier. It's not something that makes things better. It makes things worse for your life, and it also makes things worse by creating more and more sin. The sin of divorce leads to further sin of adultery. And by the way, we should say other sins besides adultery. Think about anger and distrust and lies and greed and all kinds of things that come as a result of divorces. A third thing that we learn from this text. Why is divorce so wrong? What makes it such a sin? Found in verses 5 and 6. Look at what Jesus says. For this reason. Here he's quoting from Genesis 2. Remember he's taking us all the way back to the beginning. How did God design things? How did God want things to be? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Isn't that interesting to you that Jesus felt the need to repeat himself? I mean, that line there at the beginning of verse 6 is almost identical to the last line of verse 5. There's really negligible difference. Why did Jesus do that? He wants us to make sure we paid attention. You can almost imagine him preaching these Pharisees, and he can see they're getting ready with their Deuteronomy 24 verse. And so Jesus here quotes again, they shall no longer be two, but one. And then he stops the hey, so they shall no longer be two, but one flesh. This word flesh is an interesting word. It's used a variety of ways in Scripture. Sometimes the word flesh just means the, the physical vessel that God's created us with that our, our person inhabits. Sometimes the word flesh uh, refers to the, the bad part of a person, right? The spirit and the flesh war against each other. And so sometimes that's what the word flesh means. But there are often a number of times in Scripture where the word flesh just simply refers to human lives. All flesh will see the glory of God. You get the point? So human lives. 
Do you hear what the Scripture teaches? This is from Genesis 2, and then here again from Jesus as He doubles down on it in Matthew 19. It says, this is how the deal works in marriage. Two people, two human lives come together. And we may not see it this way, and it may not often seem this way. But the reality is, whenever two human beings come together in marriage, they cease to be two people, and now they are one new person. Which, boy, that's a challenge. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. But the two people cease to become two, and they become one person. Now, what does it mean? What is divorce then, according to Jesus? Look at the rest of verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one... Is anybody reading King James, one of those old translations? They're way better on this one. It says, tear asunder. Is that right? Tear asunder. Uh, Mine is much more polite. You know, the modern translations try to make everything polite. Let no one separate. That's how we use the word divorce. Just, oh, we separated. We separated, right? That, look, that's like we're, we're hanging out at the park and it's time to go. We say, okay, bye. We separated. That is not what happens in uh, marriage. By the way, I should say something about another word here. The word that it says um, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That word joined, once again, just doesn't mean like we're walking down. We've joined each other for a little stroll. That word joined is very intense. It's like they, you're glued together. You're fastened together, right? The two become one, melded together, uh, 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 forged together. You know what I'm saying? That's the, that's the meaning of that word. And so what Jesus says is divorce is where you take two that God, God, not human beings, but God has fused together, glued together, joined together. And divorce is to tear that asunder. What would you call it if a person separated a human body from itself. What would you call it if a person tore asunder a human person? What do we call that? Murder. That's what that is. At least violence. If you don't straight up kill them, it's violence. So what's the the third reason Jesus gives? So number one, divorce is wrong because it contradicts God's order from the beginning for human relations that He created. Number two, divorce leads to further sins. It's a sin multiplier. Number three, what Jesus teaches us is that divorce is wrong Because it is an act of violence against human life. Divorce is an act of violence against human life. Now, none of us think it that way whenever we do it. We actually think it's a real amicable, kind, gracious, beneficial kind of thing. But in the reality, that's not what it is. Jesus says it is an act of violence to tear asunder a human life that's been brought together. And by the way, while we we as human beings make the choice to divorce, we don't think of it as an act of violence. But think about those you know. Perhaps, I don't know everybody's story here, maybe even you. That you've gone through a divorce. How many people come out of that months and years down the line and they're just whole? I mean, I know initially there's a euphoria. I'm free from this bad relationship, this unpleasant thing. But it's time that it keeps getting brought up. All their other relationships are filtered through that divorce. It's actually hard. Even as they're desperate for more romance and more love, it's actually much more challenging. And I say this, by the way, apart from the healing that comes in Jesus Christ, which is a beautiful thing. But you understand what I'm saying, right? Just like when you glue a couple pieces of paper together, boy, it doesn't take long to where when you tear those things asunder, you're going to rip them both up. Jesus says that's what happens to those who commit the act of uh, divorce. It's an act of violence. This is actually stated, by the way, in Malachi chapter 2 and around verse 16. Uh, Some translations translate that where God just explicitly says, I hate divorce. Pretty clear. 
But some translations, the, the language is a little bit ambiguous as far as how the sentence structure is supposed to be. One way it could be rendered is, the one who hates and divorces covers his garment in violence. Do you hear what God's saying? Same thing as Jesus is saying here. Divorce is a sin because it's an act of violence against a human life. All right. Do you agree with Jesus? You believe what he said? Not a lot of amens on sermons like this. You know what I'm saying? No, 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 no. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying it. I'm just acknowledging the truth. We can call it what it is. <laughs> Thank you, but no, it's fine. It's fine. No, this is hard, okay? This is hard. Uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to be lighthearted to diminish the, the depth of importance of this or the pain of this that comes into human lives. This is a hard teaching. Like I said, Jesus' disciples literally in the next sentence say, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. And Jesus doesn't really argue with them very much. He basically says, yeah, in some cases that's actually right. So for those who are married or for those who will choose to be married, we have to take this issue incredibly seriously. This is a grievous ill. How do we combat it, though? How do we fight against this? How could a person avoid being divorced? Because you know how complicated it is out here and how hard it is and how many people we know who've been divorced and married multiple times, maybe. So just luck of the draw. I was listening to somebody tell, it was a worldly person. They were talking about a friend of theirs who was getting married, and they said, man, most important day of your life, next to the day you get divorced, of course. And that was their mentality. It was just this is how it works. This is what happens. And that is... When you're out here in this world, that is kind of the way to look at it, honestly, if you're apart from Christ. But fortunately, Christ doesn't just drop us with this heavy burden of commands about remaining faithful in marriage and then walk away. He gives direction about how to preserve faithfulness in marriage. I'd like you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I just want to say something uh, right now, and, and I really want to, uh, we always say this, but I want to say it in a special way right now as we're kind of pivoting away from the, if I can say this way, the legalities about divorce, and we're pivoting to what should marriage look like that Lord willing would prevent, and it is the Lord's will, to prevent a divorce. You may disagree with some of the things that we've said from Scripture. We also haven't addressed every single question about divorce that the Scripture answers. It may be uh, at a future time we may address that uh, further, if, if that's something that would be of, of use. Uh, but if you have anything that's on your heart or you're concerned or you don't, you don't agree or you don't understand something that's said, Please come and talk to us about that, all right? That's not something that you need to hold quietly, and uh, we'll try to deal graciously and, and in a kind and, and thoughtful manner about that. How do we prevent divorce? How do we avoid falling into this trap? You'll notice in verse 31, uh, we have some connective tissue directly to Jesus' teaching and back to the very beginning, because verse 31 has our key quote. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And as Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Right. So right there, we've got our, our key text. What does this passage tell us about how to live as one flesh, to not commit that violence, to not divorce and lead to further sin, to not go against God's order for human relations from the very beginning? Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, 
but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. If you were to think about all the causes for divorce, disagreements over finances, uh, lack of compatibility as life moves and changes and people change, hardships that come into each individual person's life, because while the two become one flesh in marriage, they are still two as they function in the world and as they live. And there are different troubles and trials that come into each person's life. And then that comes into marriage. And sometimes those things aren't handled very well. Oftentimes they're not handled very well. And there can be fractures and divisions and pulling apart that all too often results in the dissolution of the marriage, divorce. Tearing apart what God joined together. What do you see in this passage that would change all that? Imagine a man who's just uh, weighed down. All the places he goes and all the things that he does, he's not good enough. And uh, he's told that pretty, pretty explicitly by everybody he works with and all his friends who have such success. And What would help him? How about this? What would hurt him? How about whenever he comes home and all it is is arguments and fights and more of you're not good enough and this isn't working and what eventually might that man do if he's not following in the footsteps of Jesus? By the way, no matter how a wife acts, a man's responsible to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to remain faithful. But what do you think that would do? What if every wish or, or, or desire that the, the husband may have, it's left unfulfilled in a very proactive way? I don't care what you want. I'm not doing that. I ain't, I ain't doing anything. That you, I'm doing what I want. There's pain in that. There's difficulty in that. And again, for those who are not being loyal to Christ... Too often that leads to, I'm out of here, see you later. There's a woman who, goodness, you walk around in this world as a woman and you're told all kinds of things. All kinds of things that make you uh, have a sense of vulnerability, inadequacy, failure. And then you got a husband who's negligent, doesn't care, doesn't pay you any mind, doesn't support you and help you in the burdens that you're bearing, just kind of doing his own thing playing video games or playing the stock market or playing whatever grown boys play. Not paying attention, not doing anything for you. What do you think you might think eventually? This ain't working, bud. Have a nice life. But what if that same man came home and he had a wife who sought out his best interests, who really gave herself over to him, how can I help you achieve your goals? How can I participate in, in the vision that you have for your life? And how can I submit myself to your will and your wishes as best as I'm able? How can I, verse 33, respect you and give you a sense of respect and validation as a man? You think he'd ever want to leave that? And what if whenever she came home from being beaten and battered by all the things she faces every day, she came home to somebody who said, hey, I just want you to know. I know it's just a random Tuesday, but I just want you to know I really appreciate you. Or actually, she's not somebody who likes people saying stuff like that. But whenever she comes home, uh, she finds that that work she was going to have to do at the house that she came home to, it was already done. Because he wanted to demonstrate to her that she was worth something to him. 
everything to him, honestly. That he cherished her. What about he just sat there and listened to her talk and talk and talk about all the things she had going on. And she knows she's kind of talking too much, but he's still listening. And he's still engaged and interested and cares and showing me that he cares. He's nourishing her. Whatever needs or troubles she may face, he's there to pick her up. He loves her like he would love himself. He loves her like Jesus loves her. Would she ever want to leave that? I think not. How did two become one flesh? We obey the gospel. We obey the gospel, y'all. We love like Christ loved, husbands. And as Peter would say in 1 Peter 3, we seek to be understanding of our wives. And wives, how do you maintain the marriage bond? How do you deepen that bond to really live and become and be one flesh? Don't try to just do your own thing. Let him try to follow along. Submit yourself to him. And in this text, it says, as the Christ, Christ does to the church. But I'll note to you in 1 Peter chapter 3, in that text, submission is still the instruction given to wives with their husbands, but it's as Christ did when he submitted himself for the good of us. That's what a wife does for her husband. You see how these two people would work together in this way? Honestly, divorce is the furthest thing from even an option. Because these two people are one flesh. They're working together, husband and wife, partnered. Now that's the ideal, okay? Let me do a timeout and acknowledgement or something. You, as a spouse, can only do your part. You can't go to your spouse and be like, hey, we're not allowed to get divorced, and the only way it's going to work is if you do your job to be the kind of spouse that you're supposed to be. That doesn't work. Notice that this does not say, husbands, you are the head of the wife, and make sure she knows about it. The husbands are not told that. Wives are told that, but husbands, it's almost like, husbands, be, don't listen to this part. Okay, then wives, you know, okay. Husbands are not meant to, are, are not allowed, frankly. They're not permitted. They're not authorized by God to enforce God's commands toward the wife. Much like wives are not authorized by God to ensure that their husbands are doing what Jesus says. No, no, this is sort of a, Independent homework kind of thing here, y'all. The husband and wife have to choose this. Now, I will say this. The more each spouse chooses to do what the Lord says, there's sort of a great feedback loop that occurs. The more that wife submits and respects her husband, the more his impulse to do all the bad stuff may kind of change. And he may say, how can I return the favor here? As he notices what she's doing for him. Similarly, as the husband, no matter how his wife's acting, if he's one who loves his wife and sacrificed for his wife, she'll think, you know what, maybe I should just kind of give myself over to this guy because he's pretty good. I mean, he's not the best. He's, so, he's all right, but he's doing pretty good following Jesus at least. You get what I'm saying? This is not some sort of idyllic like, oh, if you just do your job as a spouse, then you won't ever get divorced. Well, no, you can't control what the other person does. By the way, if you wonder about that, read 1 Peter chapter 3, which acknowledges that there are wives who may be godly women who may be with ungodly husbands. So you can only control your side of the ledger here. But I do believe the wisdom of God is that if we will follow in the footsteps of Jesus, if we'll operate this way, not only will we avoid divorce, more importantly, we will live as one flesh. And that is the goal. It's not just, okay, stay legally married and sleep in the same house. Uh-uh. That's not what Jesus said. He said the two shall become one. And this passage right here tells us how to do it. And for those of us who are married, we need to be pursuing this vigorously every day. Uh, whichever one you are, husband or wife, you do your part to pursue to be one flesh. Not only so you won't commit the sin of divorce, but so you will enjoy the goodness of marriage that God intended from the very beginning. And it may be 
I don't know what's going on in all your homes. It may be that I need to repent. It may be that I need to start doing better today. And it may be a long time since I've even tried. Today's the day to repent, to live as I ought, to be one flesh with my spouse. And I'll say, for those who are not yet married and may perhaps one day be married, this is what you're going for. This is what you're getting into. Not somebody to fix all your problems. Not somebody to just be buddies with, to travel and watch movies on the weekend. That's not it. I know nobody here really thinks that. But sometimes the way we talk about an act kind of seems that way. This is something far, far greater, more significant, and more hard work and more challenging and more arduous sometimes. But it's good. Like God said from the very beginning, it's very good. If we'll do it the way God designed Now, you may say, well, you're acknowledging this is hard. And frankly, in my marriage, you have no idea. I've been trying super hard and it ain't working. We're not being one flesh. Matter of fact, we just kind of drift further and further apart. It seems every time I try to take a step closer, I'm like a opposite magnet just repelling the other person. This isn't working. Why should I keep going? Why should I stay in my marriage? I see all those reasons Jesus gave for what makes it so sinful. And I see here how to prevent it or how to have a good marriage, in other words. But... What's the end goal of it all? What if we get to the end of our life and we're just a couple of cold people, never speaking really, never, no one flesh? What's the point? What are we trying for? And, and this is also a relevant question because I recognize that there no doubt are folks that say, well, I've committed this sin of divorce. I've done this wrong thing. What about me? Am I just lost cause, damaged goods? It's over? Look at verse 32 in this text as we kind of bring this thing together. Ephesians 5 and verse 32. What's this all about? What's the point of not divorcing? What's the point of living marriage in such a way that we truly are one flesh? What's the point? Verse 32. This mystery is profound. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. All this stuff about marriage isn't really about your earthly marriage, in other words. I know that in part because when Jesus was asked another time about a, a marital question, he said in Matthew 22 and verse 30, there will be no giving of marriage in the resurrection. You don't have to worry about your earthly marriage in the resurrection. It's not going to be working like that. And his explanation made it so clear. They will all be like angels in heaven. No idea what that means, but apparently that answered it. So it's not, we're not trying to stay faithful in our marriage so that we can have a great happy marriage forever and ever and we'll be in heaven holding hands at the pearly gates. That's not it. I don't know if you had to hold hands with your spouse at the pearly gates, but you ain't going to be married to them. I don't know what that means, but that's not how it's going to work. So that's not what we're going for. We're also not ultimately or only going for marital bliss. I enjoy my home life. Again, 1 Peter 3. Instructions given to wives who did not have happy home lives. What's the point? The purpose and the point of our earthly marriages is to prepare us for our heavenly marriage. The one that's described here, the marriage between Christ and the church. So all the practice, if I can say it that way, I'm not trying to diminish. I'm actually trying to make our earthly marriage much more important. But all the practice of our earthly marriages is looking forward to the end goal of the time when we'll be with the Lord forever. That's the whole deal. And in the faithfulness that we must maintain in marriage. No divorce, Jesus says. The only reason for a divorce to occur is if the other spouse has been unfaithful. That's literally the only permission Jesus gives for divorce. The faithfulness of marriage is a mirror and an echo of the faithfulness that we're to maintain with Christ, our true husband. 
who promised us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never leave you nor forsake you. What is, that's marriage talk right there. And that's what Jesus promised to His people. I will never leave you or forsake you. And we in response must never abandon, never forsake, never tear asunder the bond that God has made with us in Christ. And if you're a little skeptical, I don't know if like marriage bond, bond with Jesus, what it is, go with me to Romans chapter 6 for our last little passage here. Romans chapter 6. Listen to what happens when you're baptized into Christ. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter, well, actually I'll say that. Listen to what Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Romans 6 verse 3. Listen and listen for the marriage language here. Listen for the one flesh language that's echoed in this passage from Romans 6. Romans 6 and verse 3. Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? There Jesus, and it's like we come into Him. Therefore, we were buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we may walk in newness of life. Almost like we share the same life that Jesus shares. Not almost. That is what this passage says. For if we have been united with Him, or may we say it a little different way, if we have been made one with Him, in the likeness of His death, we will certainly also be, and yours may say, be joined with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. Or if we were to use the language God's been using in these other passages, we've been made one flesh with Him, one body with Him. 1 Corinthians 12 says when you're baptized. For we know that our old self, our old self, when there was Christ and there was me, there were two of us, our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. That doesn't exist anymore. So that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Or to use our language from marriage, we used to be two, Jesus and us. But we are no longer two, but one. Do you see this? This is your salvation, is union with Christ. And that's why God demands that we maintain our union in our marriages. It's practice. It's preparation for the union we have with Christ. It's a reflection of the faithfulness, the devotion, the love, the submission, all the things that come with our relationship with Christ. We learn it in marriage. And by the way, not just marriage. There are other relationships and other circumstances in life that are similarly mirror images where God gives commands that we think, why should I obey my parents? Why should I work like that? Why should I operate in society in this way? Why should I do it? It doesn't make any sense because it's preparation for your real marriage, for your real king, for your real master, for all those things in Scripture so that you'll be united with Christ. This is why in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21 it says, Baptism now saves you. You ever kind of bit puzzled over that verse? How does getting dunked in some water save me? I thought the grace of God saved me. I thought all these things saved me. Well, they do. And the grace of God is, is expressed by God through the power that He works when He takes us from being two different people, Christ and us, and unites us in baptism, in His death, in His life, the two become one. So many people get divorced. Well, so many people get married and then divorced and married again and divorced and married again looking for salvation. I'm lonely. I'm empty. What's my purpose? What's my value? What's my worth? There's all these broken down things inside of me and I want to be saved. I want to be liberated. I want that to be fixed. Maybe marriage will help. And then it doesn't. So you say, well, wrong person. Let me find somebody else. Maybe they'll help. And they don't save me either. And over and over again, we try to save ourselves in the union of marriage. And God says to us, 
you know what, y'all are kind of wrong, but kind of exactly right about that. Y'all ain't going to save each other. Getting divorced and getting married to somebody else ain't going to save you. It ain't going to fix your problems. It's not going to make you happier. It's not going to do all the stuff you think it'll do. But union, becoming one with someone, that is what you need to be saved. And his name is Jesus. So why don't you come be one with him? Let me give you two closing appeals that have nothing to do with marriage and everything to do with Jesus. For those who are baptized, I hope you can think about, uh, they've been baptized into Christ, I mean. You, you pledged your allegiance to Jesus in full faith and repentance. At some point in your past, you gave your life to Jesus in baptism. I want you to think about the things we've talked about in marriage and divorce and ask yourself, am I behaving with Christ as my husband as I ought? Am I living, becoming more and more one with Jesus? Or did I get married to him that day I was baptized and then kind of say, all right, I'm going to live my life. We'll share the same house, but I'm going to kind of do what I want to do. If that's the case for you, can I? I'm not, I'm not going to ask you permission. I'm just going to call you to repentance. What are you doing? What are you doing chasing after other lovers, the Lord would say in the book of Hosea? Why are you wasting everything that God gave you? He loves you. He wants you. He, was, he wants you, by the way. He chose you to be his spouse. You. You got nothing. You're bringing nothing to the table. And he wants you. And he loves you. And he always will. Come back. Be one with him again. Now to those who have not been baptized into Christ. I know you may love Jesus. And I don't know who, who is or isn't. We got a variety of people here, right? Some we don't know as well as others. You may love Jesus or have a love for Jesus. And you may enjoy dating Jesus on Sunday mornings and sometimes when you pick up your Bible. But that will not save you. That's not oneness with Him. Being one with Him is what will save you now and forever. And so I just want to exhort you. Maybe you don't trust Him enough yet, and that's fine. You need to trust Him enough before you pledge your life to Him to be one with Him. But if you do trust Him, if you know that He's good, you know that He loves you, and we're going to be reminded in just a moment again as we take the bread and the cup of just how much He loves us. If you know those things, it's kind of that person has been dating that girl for years and years, and you say, man, what you, what you waiting for? I don't know. Do you know she loves you? Yeah. Do you love her? Yeah. They put a ring on it, man. And I say to you, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins being made one with Christ now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your good design and we thank you for the goodness of marriage. And we pray, God, that you'd protect all of us, protect us in our minds and attitudes toward the sin of divorce. Protect us practically that we would not give in to this temptation. It is a tempting sin for so many so often, Father. Protect us with an awareness of just why and how bad this sin is. Uh, Protect us with a greater devotion and commitment in our marriages to become truly one flesh, to treat one another as we ought, to do what you told us to do so that we'll live as we ought in our marriages. Most of all, Father, we pray that you'd help us see how marriage is merely a, a shadow and a preparation for our true marriage with Christ. And God, I pray for each one of us ultimately for that that our union with you would supersede every other union we may have on earth, that we would see oneness with you as our true salvation. We look forward to the day whenever you'll save us finally 
when you bring us to be back with you forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.